Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world. Welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Today we have co-hosts Mary Buck and Chris McKinney on to discuss the Milo. What is the Milo and why does it matter? You'll have to listen and find out. Mary has been on in a previous episode to talk about Ugarit and Canaanite literature. If you want to listen back to learn more about her and her interests, uh, we hope you enjoy this episode. And as ever, it's helpful if you can rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. And if you'd like to support us, you can do so at onscript.study forward slash donate. Thanks and enjoy the episode. What could be more fun than talking about Jerusalem? It's like the next best thing to actually being in Jerusalem. Um, And, you know, I I know many of us that spend a lot of time in the summers are really itching to get back and walk around and see all the exciting new developments that are happening in Jerusalem. And so uh, we thought that it would be a, a fun thing to to not only give some um, some general background to the archaeology of Iron Age Jerusalem, but to talk about something more specific connected with, uh, with Jerusalem and, uh, in particular, this mysterious building called the Milo. And we were just reminiscing off, uh, off, uh, off the recording about our, our, our time together back in Jerusalem, back when we were youngsters. In the Iron Age. Uh, and it, in the Iron <laughs> Age, you know, back uh, before COVID, for sure. And back before, uh, maybe even before Facebook. <laughs> Uh, well, Indeed, this was before Facebook, it's terrible. It was, it was, oh my you know, goodness, the, we're pre-social media. <laughs> <laughs> it was the transition. I think it was, it was, it was 2005, so... It was the I year be, when Facebook face- came out. It was so weird. We came yeah. back and everybody was on Facebook. It's so strange, yeah. It's yeah, so that's, that's completely true. Uh, in fact, it was then called The Facebook, I believe. Um, so there's, uh, there's, you know, some history there that we've, you know, we've been to these places, and, and I'm always shocked by... Uh, even going back to my first visits to the city of David, how many things have really changed over uh, over the years in uh, the city of David in particular and Jerusalem overall. And so we thought it would be a good idea to just give a, a, an overview of um, Iron Age Jerusalem um, and, and really kind of the, a little bit about the geography before we dive deeper into this question of what is the Milo. So the first thing is to say is is that Jerusalem is founded on two main hills. We call them the Western Hill and the Eastern Hill. The Western Hill, uh, which today is incorrectly known as Mount Zion, uh, is the more prominent of the two. It's a very uh, elevated uh, mountain. It's where we have some of Jerusalem's finest sites, um, including most of the Old City, Jaffa Gate, the Tower of David, and so on. And of course, also the, the near the, the Church Holy Sepulchre, but actually, ancient Jerusalem, Jerusalem going back to the Bronze Age, um, at least as early as um, 1800 BC in the Middle Bronze Age, and perhaps even before that, was founded not on the Western Hill, but the uh, Eastern Hill. The Eastern Hill was the, the ancient part of Jerusalem because this is the location of the spring. The Gihon Spring is situated on the eastern slopes of the, uh, of the eastern hill, 
uh, on the edge of the Kidron Valley, which is that great deep valley which sits to the east of Jerusalem, separating it from uh, the Mount of Olives, which of course are is, is a name that will be known well to people who know the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. This is the place of the Olivet Discourse, the Ascension, and many other uh, biblical events. But it's really because of the Gihon Spring that we have the development of Jerusalem, or even really the history of Jerusalem being connected with the Eastern Hill. It's really where it all began, uh, beginning primarily with the uh, Canaanite city of Jerusalem, uh, which is, uh, it's called Jerusalem in sources well before the biblical text. We have it mentioned um, in Egyptian sources going back to, the, to about 1800 BC and what's called the execration texts. We have it mentioned in the Amarna letters, the city of Jerusalem. The Bible indicates that the city was known as Jebus and inhabited by a local population known as the, the Jebusites, and they called their city Jebus before David conquered it. All of those references refer to the relatively small lower hill known as uh, the Eastern Hill uh, by geographers and such. Uh, also has other names such as Mount Zion. Um, that is relatively small. We're talking about 10 acres or 10 football or soccer fields in size. Um, and it's not even actually the full um, eastern hill. It's just the southern part around the spring. And it wouldn't be until the reign of Solomon in the 10th century um, that we have the expansion northward to include the area that we call until today the Temple Mount. And that would expand the city and really double it in size and encompass, again, all of the eastern hill, this lower-lying hill. And it wasn't until several centuries after that that we have the expansion westward to include all of the western and eastern hills during the reign of Hezekiah. At least that's when it was fortified. And that would become uh, a really uh, an apex moment in, in uh, Jerusalem's history uh, during the 8th and 7th centuries, which is the background to the prophets. Um, and one of the big things that is really important to remember there is that the water source is actually moved from the Gihon Spring through the Eastern Hill uh, and brought to the Western side of the Eastern Hill and what we call now famously the uh, Tunnel of Hezekiah or Hezekiah's Tunnel, which totally revolutionized the, um, the, the living situation in Jerusalem, as well as changing the history of specific buildings and specific references in the biblical sources, which is going to be an important part for what we're going to talk about today. Now, one final thing before we get too far in the weeds of Jerusalem's history, we could spend all day talking about it. Um, it's important to remember that the old city of Jerusalem uh, that you visit today is not a it is not the oldest city of Jerusalem. In fact, the oldest city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the, that is the lower part of the Eastern Hill, is completely outside of the old city of Jerusalem. And the reason for that is mostly due to what happens in the second century AD when uh, Hadrian, Caesar from Rome, comes and conquers the city and rebuilds it on a new plan. And when he does that, um, he builds it on a essentially what's a, a cross street plan. Uh, we have a, a, a main north-south street called a Cardo and an east-west street called a Decumanus. And they, they uh, cross one another and create four quarters, which today are known as the Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Armenian quarters. Uh, and the streets that you walk on today in the old city are directly over those ancient streets. 
and that essential profile has maintained for almost 2,000 years, but it is well north of the ancient city of Jerusalem. And that we're actually quite thankful for that because it meant that all of the later remains, particularly the Crusader, Ottoman, Byzantine, and so on, left undisturbed the city of David, which is mostly connected with the second temple period, which would be the time period of the New Testament, and the Old Testament period, particularly the Iron Age, as well as some Canaanite remains from the Middle Bronze and a little bit in the Late Bronze Age. And so that gives us a uh, kind of a bird's eye view of how we are to divide up um, biblical Jerusalem and understand it a bit more. So our focus today is going to be on one particular aspect of the city of David. Mary, do you have any comments or questions? About <laughs> no, this is great. This is great. I love it. Um, I was curious. Uh, so if, if you, I mean, obviously you could cover all the different periods of Jerusalem, but I think you're going to zone, you know, zoom in a little bit on the iron age. Could you give, could you give us a sense of the time period? What's the time period of the iron age? You know, when did it start really getting settled and, and when does the iron age end? Yeah, that's a, that's a great that's a great uh, thing to to consider because the Iron Age is let's just say in terms of the periodization, uh, traditionally it's connected with about 1200 to about 586, or if you want to date it a little bit later, into about 539 BC. Um, the beginning of the period is somewhat debated. The end of the period is not very much debated because it either connects with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 or with uh, the beginning of the Persian Empire, uh, which starts in 539 with the conquering of, of, of Babylon. Now, what's not in debate in Jerusalem's history is essentially the 9th, 8th, 7th, and early 6th centuries BC, and in particular the 8th, 7th, and 6th centuries, because we have extremely well-built structures, uh, we have well-established um, we have well-established historical backgrounds. We have the Book of Kings. We have uh, um, outside sources from uh, Assyria that are, that are well-documented that talk about ties between Judah and Jerusalem and the Assyrian courts and, and, and so on. What has been uh, a bit problematic archaeologically and historically, uh, and that's perhaps understating it a bit, um, is the earlier periods in the Iron Age. Um, we don't know a whole lot about what's happening in Jerusalem in the 1100s uh, or the thousands, you know, what we call the 12th and 11th century uh, BC. Uh, and we know not as much also about the, the, the 10th century, you know, the 900s BC. Uh, but it's precisely during this time frame that we have the first references to Jerusalem uh, in connection with the monarchy. 2 Samuel chapter 5, in the parallel passage also in Chronicles, refers to David conquering the city of Jebus. And it specifically makes reference to David conquering the stronghold of Zion and doing so in a way, if you put the two sources together, that apparently Joab, his nephew slash commander slash kind of a jerk, uh, 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 he got stuff done, commander. man. I feel like he, he, jerk he got, is a little a unfair. He's a total fixer. What? Oh. He's a total fixer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't even get me. I like the whole part of first Kings one with, uh, I love that section. Are you oh, kidding? It's, it's like my favorite passage in the book. Okay. Oh keep going. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that the best, the best, uh, parallel to first Kings one, you know, the rise of Solomon 
is that famous, perhaps the most famous scene in cinematic history, uh, which is the baptism in Godfather 2. I haven't seen the Godfather where, series. Uh, <laughs> oh, Mary, you got to go see Godfather. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's about, you know, whacking all the people that... Um, yeah, he were, makes his hit list. Yeah, it's like, it's a hit it's, list. It's he legit. Gives it to, yeah. He gives it to Benaiah and says, go, and, and Joab's on that hit list, and deservedly so. I, I feel like um, he gets a little so. bit of an unfair rap. I mean, he really does get stuff done. So, I mean, he, he, you can't he have does. it both ways. So, anyway, but that's a side point. No, but it's, it's, a, it's a good point. I mean, Joab, I think, is a fully developed character, like anti-hero, villain slash, you want him on your side, <laughs> um, don't know what to do with him. In an apocalypse, uh, I'm have... calling Joab. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay, definitely. sorry. I'm digressing heavily. No, I'm so no, sorry. It's, it's a, but to, keep to back to the Tsinor and the, and the thing that yes. Joab did. Yes. To, to get that background, uh, in, Joab's, in Joab's favor, he is uh, credited, according to Samuel and Chronicles, again, if you put these th two things together, with conquering uh, the city of Jerusalem, or at least doing something uh, to do that. Now, there's a bit of a debate uh, about how he does this, but at least according to traditional interpretations, he does it by going up a water shaft. And in Hebrew, the word is senor, which has about 10 different explanations, but I still think that the most likely explanation is is the water shaft uh, or some type of water system that is connected with it. And then from that, David, uh, it says he lives in 2 Samuel 5 in the stronghold of Zion. And then uh, we have references right after that to him um, calling on Hiram, king of Tyre, who comes down and builds for him a house of cedar, and then all kinds of things that progress from there in terms of conflict with the Philistines and continuing conflict with others. And so this is a very important part of this whole uh, sequence, but it's in that time frame, it's in that context that we find the reference to the Milo. In fact, we read, let me go ahead and read this so I don't mess it up. 2 Samuel 5, 9 says, and David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward, all around from the Milo inward. Now, since that has been a, you know, a well-documented text for a long time, and since the initial, uh, we should say that it's not until the 19th and 20th century that we have the recognition that the city of David uh, was where we now know it is, that is the Eastern Hill, there's been all kinds of attempts to locate the Milo. Um, and there's some really interesting attempts to do that. Um, and there, there may have been even ancient attempts to do that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the Western Hill, um, sometimes called Mount Zion in the area of Jaffa, Jaffa Gate, has the traditional uh, tomb of David. It also has the traditional palace of David. Uh, near there, and those of you who have, have been in Jerusalem um, may have walked through uh, Mamilla Mall, uh, and you can go to the Croc store and uh, Aroma and whatever you like there. It's a, it's a wonderful mall. There's a great the restaurant name, on the rooftop, just saying. Oh, and you there overlook. is. I've I can't remember there. the name of it. What is it called? Anyway, I, it's I like can't a butter, we'll but put it's it a great view. Okay, gotta go there, great food. Okay, continue. Yeah, no, good, excellent point. Um, <laughs> but but think about the name. What does Mamilla sound like? Mamilla sounds like Milo. And this is actually what uh, some scholars thought. If you go back to the 19th and 20th century, they thought, okay, this is this is the Milo. 
um, it makes sense. There's, there's water there. Um, there is this wall. There's David's palace. It's all in the same place. Um, and in fact, if you go back to some of the, um, some of the sources, uh, Charles Warren and others, um, they talk about this place as being possibly the Milo, and they make specific reference to um, a pool, which today is located uh, south of the uh, area of Mamilla Mall. It's called the Mamilla Pool, uh, which was used as up until the, the early 20th century as one of the main water sources for Jerusalem because it continued to fill as a, as a reservoir. And you can actually look at pictures where in that, you know, in the 19th and 20th century, uh, women would go and fill up their jars at this very place. Um, and call it basically Milo. Okay, um, hold on. I'm so sorry to interrupt yeah. you. I uh, did not know this. And so where is it? Is it where the, is it right below Mamila today? Like down in the valley yeah, there? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. It's, it's not on your tourist map. Um, it's not on your local, you know, the, the, the if you went to the old city, <laughs> you have to know where to look for. But if you're, if you are, actually it's right across from Jerusalem's only, uh, one of Jerusalem's only five-star hotels, which was recently completed on um, at, right at the corner of um, Mamilla and, and, and David Street. On the other side of the street, uh, next to what is, if, I, if I'm, it's called Independence Park, I believe, uh, right across from where the American consulate used to be, um, there is a Arab cemetery. And right around that Arab cemetery is the Mamilla Pool. Um, and, I never yeah. knew that. That's so cool. Yeah. I, that's great. And I didn't know that they connected that to the Milo. Well, they, they, or, they did. Uh, Warren did. Um, and you had other sources that were connecting it. And actually, there's, there's a whole, uh, you can read about it in the article, uh, but there's a whole list of, um, of sources talking about how they trace this tradition in Arabic, Christian, and Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition basically says that that was, uh, the, that was the Milo. But the problem is, and this is the big hangup, the problem is, is that that pool dates to a much later period. It was dug out by Herod the Great. It's a part of the system that brought water from the area of Solomon's pools, uh, which is near Bethlehem via an aqueduct to Jerusalem, which ultimately fed um, the area of the Herodian Palace, um, which is in the area of David's citadel, and then continued all, all the way, of course, to the temple, where it was brought to the temple by Wilson's Arch. And so this is one of Jerusalem's uh, exterior large reservoirs, at least according to um, you know, the traditional view of how that would have worked. In any case, it's certainly not Iron Age. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. Um, and, but what's interesting about that is that they still seem to have called it the Milo um, and connected it with this idea that, I'll, that I'm going to explain in a little bit of the place of the filling, the place of the filling of water. And why now, filling? What's the, what's the connection? Is that from the Hebrew, you know, Malay yes. or, okay. Yeah, so I'll go ahead and put my chips on the table. That we think that the the filling, because the word milo in Hebrew is based upon the the verbal form for malay, which means to to fill, even until today in, in modern Hebrew, um, is connected with the place that is connected with the filling of water bottles or the filling of water containers. Now, everyone in who has made suggestions about uh, the milo has essentially made similar uh, etymological connections. That is, they've looked for ways to 
connect with the filling. Um, and the most common one, and, and, and the one that is usually stated until today, is the idea that the Milo is associated with the terracing, which is backfilled with, uh, with soil in the area of the stepstone structure and along the eastern side of the eastern hill, where there is very clear that there is the filling of this area with soil to, uh, to fortify the eastern slope of Jerusalem, because um, those of you who have not been to Jerusalem, it is very steep, and there's always a need to continue to fortify it. And so some would suggest that the uh, stepstone structure, uh, area G, sometimes called Jerusalem's pyramid, um, is the, the Milo, or perhaps the terraces themselves along the wall are the Milo, connecting the idea of filling with this area. That, that is, like if you were to ask um, a tour guide, if you were to ask a biblical scholar, that would be the main suggestion. It's not the only suggestion, but it's the, the suggestion that has won the, most, uh, won the most support. I've certainly um, only it, ever heard that. So my, what I had always heard, and I'm more just putting that out there as a standard. I think when you take any tour guide or tour, or even if you go read the placards at the Steps on Structure, there's some sense that there was a need to fill between, you know, the, the upper mountain and the city of David and that it was connecting the two or what have you. And that that was the purpose of the stepstone structure. So I certainly have only ever heard that, um, which is interesting. So I, I'm excited to hear, I think you're, you're proposing something quite different than that, which would be really innovative. Yeah, we're exactly. We're. I think that that's right. I, from based on my research and and trying to read everything I can on the Milo, that seems to be where things are, and that goes back to uh, really two main views. One is 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 that of Kathleen Kenyon, who excavated this area back in the in the fifties and the sixties, uh, and then also other suggestions made by uh, Larry Steger after that, connecting this region with, uh, with the Milo. And I, I won't say it's a bad idea. I mean, I, I think that it has some, something for it, you know, in the sense that it's connected with, the, with an etymological meaning that makes sense. And of course, it's, it's a quite large part of Jerusalem. But it, in my opinion, um, it doesn't really make sense to call a terrace wall by any proper name. Uh, if we look at the Book of Kings, uh, if we think about the, the wider understanding of the Deuteronomistic history, um, we have specific names of buildings. We have references, of course, as to the house of Yahweh, the house of, house of, uh, of Solomon. Uh, we have references to particular gates, corners, houses of the Chamberlain, and so on. They're, they're, and, and they're written in the context of bragging about things that they were able to accomplish over the course of their reign, which is entirely consistent with how we think about the Babylonian kings, the Assyrian kings, and likely all of the kings, if we had access to their historical records, they would list at, towards the end of their chronicles that such and such king did this, and he's so great. In fact, we have that in the book of Kings. Um, very interestingly, almost always near the citation formula that we have um, it's a very easy, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to memorize scripture, you can memorize, you know, the, the text for every king of Judah and Israel. Is it not written in the kings of the, the chronicles of the kings of Israel and Judah? Uh, and right, and usually right before or after that, we have what's called chronistic details. Uh, these have to do with specific building projects 
uh, and or assassination attempts or the death of a particular king. It's here where we read about um, the death of Joash, for instance, which we'll talk about in a minute, at Beit Milo. It's here where we have the death of Josiah when he's uh, out on the run. Um, so there's these are very like small details, and, and historians take these with even uh, more historical value because they're connected with these citations, which probably came from actual, at least in my opinion, actual chronicles of the kings of Israel and Judah, which were the sources, at least part of the sources, by which we get the book of uh, the book of Kings. And so, my my theory, or or, or not just my theory, but m- along with my colleague Aaron Tavger, um, we suggest that it makes much more sense that. The Milo, uh, which is referenced several times in the book of Kings or Samuel and Kings, as well as in Chronicles, is something much more, um, much more impactful than just a terrace wall. I mean, no one really, I mean, maybe workers brag about what they do with building a terrace wall, um, but it's not exactly the most exciting thing um, to build a terrace wall and maintain it. It's just, it needs to function, but, but no one's walking by that and say, man, look how great Solomon was. He made sure that dirt didn't fall down the valley. I mean, it, it, you would think that something like um, the Milo would be something that is really substantial and part of a daily life of the uh, of of ancient the ancient inhabitants of Jerusalem, and so with that kind of as a starting point, let me just read through these references. We've already read the one about David living in the stronghold and building the Milo, which seems to indicate that both the stronghold and probably the Milo were already pre-existing when he came there. Uh, Solomon in 1 Kings 9.15, it says, the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of Yahweh and his own house and the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hatzor and Megiddo and Gezer and so on. So if you notice in that passage, it's the house of Yahweh, which is the temple, a whole, you know, a whole two chapters on that. Uh, the, the, his own house, you know, have another chapter for that. The wall of Jerusalem, which would presumably include not only the fortification itself, but the terraces associated with it that are need to, needed to support it. And then it specifically draws attention to the Milo. But it's not just that. In, in, in the case of Solomon, we have references, two other references to the Milo. We have one in 1 Kings 9.24, where it talks about the Milo uh, being built in connection with some way with with Pharaoh's daughter. It's a little bit harder one to to understand exactly what's being mentioned there. But then a third one in 1 Kings 11.27, which I think is is very, very interesting, which talks about how in the days uh, near the end of Solomon's reign, how he has adversaries that rise up against him. And so in the story of Kings, this is, we've reached the end of the golden age. Solomon's uh, married uh, too many too many wives and concubines. He's trusted in wealth. He's trusted in his alliances uh, to these different nations. He's built the various uh, houses of the, of the gods on the hill east of Jerusalem. And it's precisely in this moment where it says, once again, Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father, and then begins to talk about the, um, the character of Jeroboam. And it, we, we learn in that passage that Jeroboam seems to be connected with the control of the corvée labor, the, the, the forced labor that was going on in Jerusalem. And so one of my suggestions is that this is really interesting and perhaps there's something to the reference to the Milo in connection with both Solomon building it, but also the area that, um, you know, that, that it's the place that Jeroboam 
is going to revolt. Now, and it, we'll come back to that. But with as we continue through, there's two other sources. The, the, the one that's really kind of where I started with all this is 2 Kings 12.20. And this is King Joash. This is the grandson of, uh, of Athaliah, the only grandson that survives. Uh, all the other ones uh, get whacked, to continue with the godfather imagery, uh, by Athaliah, um, a godmother, I guess. And she wipes out the whole line. Joash survives. Um, and over the course of his long reign, he's a good king, except at the end, he does some bad things and gets assassinated himself. And it says that he is assassinated as he goes down the steps of Scylla in Beit Milo in Beit Milo. And so that's where we really started with this suggestion. Um, we, we started with thinking about what is a Beit Milo in Jerusalem? What does it mean to have a house of the filling? And, and what would that mean that Joash was killed there? Well, there were those, to continue with the traditional suggestion, they would say that that's, that's connected with the step stone structure and the, the structure connected with that, maybe the, what's called the large stone structure. Um, but we, we had a different idea. And for that, um, we, we will take you also to the book of Judges, actually. In the book of Judges, we have in Judges chapter 9, a reference to a town called Beit Milo. This is a town that's near Shechem, um, just what we believe is directly across from it at a place called Tel Sufan. And near that site, just to the west, uh, there is a spring called Ein Beit Ilma, which is very, very close to the term uh, Beit Milo. It just means the spring of the house of Ilma, which is probably uh, just simply the corruption of yeah. the word Milo. You have inversions and, like that all the time in Semitics. So it's super, super common, yeah. Yeah. De definitely. And, 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 but what's interesting is that there is essentially a pump house directly over the spot, and it's a very large and prominent spring. And so our suggestion in a different paper is that the Beit Milo of Judges 9 is not a reference to some particular building in Shechem, but it refers to these two parallel towns. One is Tel Sufan, uh, Beit Milo, and its name is preserved at this place, Ein Beit Ilma, which is a place where people likely filled up with, with water. Uh, and then we have uh, Shechem being mentioned there. And so this got us along the track of, well, what if the area that of the Milo was the place that was most connected with uh, the filling of water? And what would make the most sense, uh, the, the place that was most connected with the filling of water before Hezekiah moves the water from the Gihon Spring to the area of uh, the Siloam Pool, which is on the western side, the area that was most connected with the filling of water would be the Gihon Spring. Because the Gihon Spring was the ancient water source for Jerusalem uh, going back to the Middle Bronze Age and beyond. And we know that there are fortifications that were constructed there in the Middle Bronze Age and continued to be fortified uh, throughout the Iron Age and in use in the Iron Age. And it's here where um, our, our research, um, I think, really got exciting because we also began to communicate with some of the excavators in Jerusalem and the City of David, uh, most especially Joe Ziel and Nakshon Zantone. Um, Joe Ziel and both of these scholars had been working in this area and had recently published that the, uh, because there was a, a storm in the area of the Spring Tower, which if you haven't been there, is just really impossible to describe. It's just absolutely enormous. It's just this massive, massive 
fortification and tower that sits directly over the Gihon Spring. And the assumption was all along that it was built in the Middle Bronze Age. But then you had some scholars say, no, it doesn't make sense. It's Middle Bronze Age. There's nothing really power. There's nothing really happening in the Bronze Age. Uh, we don't know of any of these big building projects. It's probably all Iron Age. Um, and so it, it turned out that they were able to, because of this storm, do a radiocarbon test with several samples of the foundation of the spring tower, which showed two things. One, that most of the samples dated to the Middle Bronze Age, and that two, there was evidence of the ninth century. That is, that apparently, and this is what the, the assumption is now, the, the interpretation is, is that this massive fortification uh, of a tower, which is over the spring, over the Gihon Spring, is connected with other fortifications, that it was initially built in the Middle Bronze Age uh, during Canaanite Jerusalem. So this is Amarna, execration texts, uh, if we want to connect uh, even Davidic Jerusalem before that. And then over the course of the Iron Age, it remained the fortification used by the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And at some point in the ninth century, based upon the radiocarbon data, it was retrofitted. It was re-strengthened. Uh, and this is, they also excavated around there and found uh, several deposits, which were dated precisely during this, this period of time, the ninth century BC, which is precisely when we have uh, the story of King Joash of Judah being assassinated in Beit Milo and is now a very well-established archaeological period because we have such texts as the Teldan Stele, the Mesha Stele, which talk about uh, the House of David, uh, which is another term for the kingdom of Judah. Uh, we have references, uh, again, from, let's call it enemy sources, but we also have the destruction of Philistine Gath, which we have a very well-established um, a ceramic assemblage, which is the same assemblage we find in and around um, the, the Gihon uh, Spring Tower. And so our suggestion um, was coupled with that. And so we're essentially saying is that it's really interesting that these sources that we have, particularly the one about Joash, which date to the ninth century, are making references to this Milo. Now, unfortunately for us, and maybe it will come eventually, we don't have 10th century remains specifically that we can connect with, uh, with the Milo, but we do have 9th century. Now, that's really interesting because the Milo essentially disappears in the historical sources after Joash, which is late uh, 9th century, beginning of the 8th century BC. And probably the reason for this is because instead of, at least in our opinion, is because instead of it being associated specifically with a place called the Milo of the water source of the Gihon Spring, what happens? Well, Hezekiah creates the Siloam Channel or Hezekiah's Tunnel and creates a water source that digs through the, um, the Eastern Hill and brings it over to the Pool of Siloam or the Pool of Shellac. And so that becomes then the focal point of the water in Jerusalem. And so our suggestion is, is that what we have in 2 Kings 12 and 1 Kings 11 and, and, and so on with these references to the Milo is an early strata uh, uh, that is knowledgeable of the main water systems in Jerusalem before Hezekiah began to, um, uh, begin to create these new water systems. Now that's important for a couple of reasons. It's important because there's a lot of people who would date 
everything in the Book of Kings to a much later, a much later, a much later date. And there's all kinds of arguments associated with um, how exactly you, uh, you know, can look for earlier strata in, in, in the text here. Uh, I, without getting into that, I think that this makes a lot of sense that we have, uh, if we identify, just to state it concisely, the Milo with the Gihon Spring, and specifically the, the, the spring, the massive spring t tower, which was over that in the Middle Bronze Age, throughout the Iron Age, it makes a lot of sense as the focal point of many of these, uh, of many of these references. Um, and I have other things to say, but I, I want to give you a chance if you want to add some comments or questions. No, just kidding. Yeah. So <laughs> no, I I do. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, no, I so and for the sort of like lay person, I don't consider myself to be a, a you know a scholar of you know City of David by any means. So if I'm getting this right, um, and I am of course interested when you're talking about the, the spring tower from the Bron middle bronze age, right? Cause it very much matches sort of the megalithic type constructions in the middle bronze age. So it gets constructed in the middle bronze age to sort of protect the water source. And it, and it would have been quite massive. You could look out from the top. It was a good outlook to see South words, whatever. And it's, so this bait Milo is literally the house of the filling. So where everybody go gets, goes to get their water because so I'm, I'm kind of, um, putting myself in this situation, right? I got to go get water. I'm very, um, exposed at that moment, right? Because you're, you're bending down, you're filling things, whatever. So you're going to need sort of some type of force to look out, make sure it's safe. So they build a tower above that filling station and that this filling station from the middle bronze age remains in use all the way through sort of you know, 11th centuries, 10th centuries, et cetera. And then there's some type of a retrofitting that occurs potentially during the reign of Joash where they expand it, they build it up. Once Hezekiah, you know, diverts the water source south, there's no need for this sort of bait me low anymore because really where they're focused is kind of the water being brought in, you know, to the confines of the walls, right? And so there is no need for it anymore. Is that kind of the narrative that you're building? Exactly. That's 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 exactly the the, the argument. And to support that argument, I, I would add it was something we've already just talked about. Think about the. Um, the later so-called Milo in the Western Hill, where they're essentially doing the same thing. They're calling this place of the, the, the Milo, the place that they're filling up, they're filling up with water. But it's, it's only connected to a particular time. And the memory of what you call it lives on, but the location has shifted because something has changed. By that point, even much later on in the, in the Byzantine period and afterwards, they've even lost the access to the Siloam pool as the main source for the waters of Jerusalem. And it moves and it moves elsewhere. And we've also in the article, uh, which will hopefully be out in the next year, um, have um, a, a lot of references to um, other examples of this in the second temple period. For instance, for instance, um, we have on Sukkot, the place where they go down to the Siloam pool and it's the place of filling. We have references in the Epic of Kirta in Ugarit where they talks about them filling water jugs outside of the city um, of that they're about to conquer the city of Udum. Uh, so we have a lot of these uh, references where we point to um, and compare how you would name places connected with the idea of filling. And the other thing I think is important is we also looked for any other, even just within the semantic range of the term filling, uh, even with a, in a verb form or a noun form. And I could only find one biblical reference 
to the idea that filling is connected with with soil or, or stone. And that was where we have uh, the so-called Philistines of Avimelech filling up the wells of Isaac, which interestingly enough also has to do with water because they're filling up the wells. And so there's just a kind of a natural embedded connection that the word fill has to do with, with uh, liquid or water. And, and you can just look throughout the Hebrew Bible as well as, um, as well as its usage in uh, other Semitic languages. And so um, I, I think we, we, we can make a compelling case archaeologically. Um, we can make a compelling case uh, textually up until now. Uh, but in some ways, we haven't even got to the coolest part yet. Um, because in my opinion, if everything, let, let's just say, if you take everything I say uh, for the sake of argument, uh, what does that mean then? What does that do for us? Well, if in fact the Milo, the house of Milo, is the spring tower around the Gihon Spring, what happened at the Gihon Spring? Well, think about what we've talked about until now. Second Samuel 5 talks about we have Joab conquering the city using the water system. Um, so the symbol of the conquest of Jerusalem, as well as perhaps the thing that was bragged about by the inhabitants of Jebus when they say even the blind and the lame can be kept out. And I know there's a bunch of different interpretations about it, but the, the symbol of David conquering the city is conquering it through its, uh, through its main fortification system, which is some way connected with the Gihon Spring. So we have the conquering of the city of David. The first thing he does when he builds Jerusalem is he builds up the Milo. Um, and then we have Solomon, who is anointed king. Um, and in the story, if we go back to that, uh, you know, the Godfather story of First Kings 1, um, we have the, the rivals to the Don or the, the crown uh, over in the, the, the Jerusalem's other spring, the Ein Rogel, the spring of Rogel, which is to the south. And we have uh, Bathsheba going into to David's room and saying, what's the deal, Dave? You know, our son's supposed to be king. And then David says, you know what, you're right, do these things. And he gives these instructions, take this new, uh, this new officer, Zadok, Benaiah, uh, Nathan, and so on, put on my robe, put him on my, uh, on my mule, which by the way is the background to um, the triumphal entry, by the way. But they, they say, go down to the Gihon Spring, right? So he is pronounced king at, if I'm right, if we're right in this article, the very same place that David conquers the city. Third, when Solomon builds from the Milo outward, it's mentioned three times as this big building project. And if you think about this, the idea of being in the place where we have the anointing of, uh, of Solomon, as well as the conquering of the city, think about the impact of that for everyday people living in Jerusalem. Every time you go to the most prominent monumental structure in Jerusalem, what are you saying and talking about? You're talking about the story that happened in Jerusalem. And, um, and, and you're, you're remembering, you know, what your connection with um, the, the really, I don't want to say myth, but the, the legend of these, uh, of these kings who, who are, projecting their heroic deeds through their building of structures. Now, we can connect that with things that are much more explicit in the ancient Near East, with especially like the Assyrians, where they show their heroic deeds by killing lions and 
uh, and flaying people and destroying cities, which is not something that happens in ancient Jerusalem, but still the concept of monumentality of kings building massive structures and maintaining as well as building um, large buildings that, that, that are named after themselves or named after um, or Yahweh are clearly significant in the Deuteronomistic history. And so if David and Solomon are connected with this, then think about how that is subverted in the story moving forward. Because as we get to Jeroboam, it seems, at least in my interpretation, that Jeroboam is actually working on the Milo when he's approached by the prophet to say, break away from the kingdom of David, break away and I give you 10 portions of the 12. And so he has this prophecy where he's given, you know, the, 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 the keys to this new kingdom uh, that, that Yahweh is going to establish with him. And, and we learn about that in the next chapter in 1 Kings chapter 12, precisely at the same place that Solomon received kingship, again, if, if I'm right. And then we have, in the case of, of Joash, he is assassinated in the very place of kingship. And so if you think about all of these traditions being tied to the same place, and even the way we think about how, uh, yes, the events happened, but if you're, uh, what I like to say, Yoblo Judahite, uh, you know, instead of Joblo, uh, Yoblo uh, Judahite walking around Jerusalem, you're not walking around with the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. You're not walking around with the Book of Kings. What are the stories you're telling about David and Solomon and Joash and so on, you're, you're telling them in connected connection with the stories and the places in which they happened. Uh, and in particular, that's the case in Jerusalem where so much of the history is right in front of them. And so there's, they're telling these stories. And so that's what makes the break where we have uh, Joash, the last reference to the Milo, and then Hezekiah changing the game uh, or changing the, 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 the scope of history, you might say, in references to specific buildings in Jerusalem by taking the waters from the east to the west and then no more references to the Milo until it was uncovered uh, much, much, much later in the explorations of, of Warren and uh, uh, Montague Parker and so on, up until the recent excavations by Shukrun and, and, and Roni Reich and Joe Ziel and so on. Um, so again, um, it's exciting, in my opinion, to make those, or even think about the concept, whether I'm right or not. I think that you see, we need to start thinking more about how, if, if the best way to understand the biblical text is to understand the original author and the original audience, it's best to put yourself in those sh in their shoes to try and be able to understand what were these stories that were out there in terms of circulation. Um, and so to me, this is one of those things that I think just makes a lot of sense. We can never uh, prove it absolutely, but I think it makes a lot of sense given all the data that we have. No, I mean, I think it sounds, it's an interesting, there's a couple things come to mind. One, I've never... Uh, I've, n I've never heard this before, but I've never been satisfied with the old version of the Milo because it just didn't make any sense. Because they'd be like, hey, let's go to the Milo, which if it were just a filling of earth, it'd be like, hey, let's go to the stuff that's underground. That's this is not a place where you meet, right? It doesn't actually make sense. Um, I think the other thing that has always thrown me off was the bait Milo reference, because that truly is referencing bait, meaning house or temple or structure or whatever. So it's what? It's the house that's on the backfill. I mean, it, we don't ever call anything underground anything. It'd be like, go to the landfill, right? Like it's not what you, but the idea being, if it's at the place of the filling or the house of the filling, then it becomes a really significant structure and one that's useful one um so this seems to me like a fantastic 
I mean, interpretation of what's going on. And I think so much more powerful. I mean, just from even as we read, you know, independently as we read the Bible, like understanding what that looks like. One question I had for you is just, is there any idea about height of the spring tower? If we think about that being above and that being the Beit Milo, obviously height is almost impossible to kind of think about, but is there any sort of sense of what that could have been in the middle of Bronze Age and or when it gets retrofitted in the ninth century? More thinking about as a, okay, if I'm going to put myself into a person back then, right? Solomon gets crowned, you know, you know, on the donkey, like he goes there. Is it, is, you know, is he taken up to the top of the spring tower, right? Would it have been a place of lookout so everybody could see right around or is it relatively low and just allows for a garrison of troops or what could that bait Milo have looked like based upon the archeological evidence? Yeah. So let me, let me, good questions. In, in, in terms of the height, the answer is ultimately we don't know, but in reality, it, it, for those of you who have been to the city of David and walked through the Hezekiah's tunnel, really it's not unlimited, but it, it, it's as big as you wanted, would want to make it because the stones for the foundation of the, of the spring tower are absolutely massive. I mean, it is just a colossal structure um, that in terms of it's just girth and, and width of, of, of stones that it was constructed from, uh, to borrow from Greek mythology and other names, it's, it's really a Cyclopean style, you know, only Cyclops could do it. Um, it's, it's just a massive, massive structure. So in terms of, in terms of size, 20, 30, I mean, it, it really could be quite a massive structure. And we also need to remember that it's over the Kidron Valley. And so the Kidron Valley itself is actually lower in ancient antiquity than it is than it is now. And so the disparity as you approached Jerusalem from this vantage point and saw this just massive structure as it uh, it really jutted out as kind of an arm of Jerusalem's fortifications going down to the Gihon Spring would really have been the most distinctive feature. And so if we think of David taking the stronghold of Zion, which in my opinion, uh, following Jane Cahill's suggestion, um, is probably the, st- uh, the, the stepstone structure with the large stone structure, uh, which is sometimes identified with the house of uh, the palace of David, which I don't agree with, but because um, but I think it's pre-existing. We have these two monumental pieces of uh, Jebusite Jerusalem, um, and in the case of, of the Stepstones, or in the case of the, the Gihon Spring Tower, it's something that goes back to much earlier days. And so it's just this massive, massive structure. Now, I did want to come back to uh, a couple other things that you, that you mentioned. Um, and I think you're right. Like, who's going to call something after what's in the foundation? I mean, uh, when, they, when they dug out and, and they, when they had to create the platform for which uh, Washington, D.C. was on, they had to make all kinds of terraces. They don't call it the Terrace House. They call it the White House. Uh, they don't, you know, just to use a modern, you know, a modern analogy. And in the biblical text itself, Steger points out, even though he continues to, um, to hold to a similar position to this, he pointed out that in 2 Kings 23, 4, we have references to the terraces of Kidron, uh, so there's actually a kind of generic term um, that, in, th- in this case, it refers, I believe, to where Josiah goes out and burns the Asherah pole in the terraces of Kidron. And so we actually may already have a term for these retaining walls that's not uh, something specific and associated with monumentality and associated with uh, glorifying the glorifying the king. And so I, I think, again... It, 
we, we kept looking for things that would be like the silver bullet to make this whole idea fall apart. But every, every way, way we went, it seemed like there's always a kind of a better explanation. So that's why we continue to think that it's, uh, it's a good idea uh, and hopefully it will catch on. Uh, it but, should. You know, it, I like totally have, you've sold me on this idea. I think it makes way more sense than what I had, what I, every time I've gone to the city of David, I've thought, wow, here's the filling. That makes no sense. So yeah. But just imagine, like you have that, okay, to, you have that great feeling when you're on the Mount of Olives and you're walking down the Mount of Olives and you're imagining the triumphal entry, you see Jerusalem right in front of you. Well, think about what that's based on with Solomon coming down on the donkey from uh, the, the mule from the palace of David. And you have him on this, either on or next to the Gion spring, this massive structure. And then uh, you have Adonijah and his uh, old heads, you know, the, the old guys who are traitorous, uh, Joab and Aviatar and the other sons of the king. They're at the other spring trying to be sneaky to, to pronounce uh, to pronounce him as as king, uh, it, it just is just such a great parallel. You know, I, I've, I've toyed around. You know, this is part two. You know, the tale of the two springs uh, um, uh, of how these things go. You know, and, and they even say like when they when they announce that Solomon is king, that the earth shook. I mean, you can just see um, what it, what it would have what it, what, it, what it would have felt like. But what's great about it as well is that unlike what we have, let's say, in Assyrian royal inscriptions, where always the king gets patted on the back for all the wonderful things he does, the, the Deuteronomistic history, the writers of the books of Samuel and Kings, they go out of their way to turn some of these things on their head. They show that it's the place that Solomon was anointed king, but it's also the place where he loses kingship. Uh, and I think those are the kind of things that are really distinctive to the biblical text uh, and showing not only the glorification and exaltation of particular kings, but also showing their downfall for uh, their uh, uh, bad attitudes as well as deeds against uh, against Yahweh. One last thing. One last. Wait, thing. I have another question. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, well, I, let, let me. Let, I, go, want, go. I want more. One, one question. But it's interesting to me as well that in the case of Ein Rogel, uh, that this is the area. Um, that is perhaps connected with the location of Absalom's uh, monument. Uh, and I, I can't get into all the specifics of why I think that is, uh, but if you compare Genesis 14, which talks about the Valley of Shaveh, and you have the uh, reference to the King's Valley in Genesis 14, as well as in, uh, in 2 Samuel, uh, m- my suggestion is, is that the spring of Rogel is connected with the two would-be Davidic usurpers, Absalom and Adonijah versus David and Solomon. And it's interesting as well that this is within a very, uh, a very short distance of where we have, uh, tradition, uh, according to Josephus, the, uh, the tomb of Annas the high priest, as, all, as well as the field where we have Judas uh, killing himself. And so you have like these, uh, which by the way, is also the location of the uh, Gehenna, the, the, the Hinnom Valley and the, the whole concept of child sacrifice, which gets reflected in second temple period as a very negative place and even the, the personification of hell itself. And so perhaps these positive and negative ideas, which ha- actually happen and are connected with um, Old Testament 
um, history and concepts, they get reflected on and continue through the tradition. Some get, some get forgotten, but some continue and get developed in really interesting ways. So anyway, that, I wanted to add that on. That's, that's part of, you know, the, the next, the next uh, paper, but no, I think that's, a, I like the tale of two springs. It's, we're definitely in the Lord of the Rings themes here. Um, no, I, I did have a question about, okay. So it's, it, as you were talking, I'm, I'm trying to, again, put myself in the, my like frame of iron age time of time of Solomon, right? He, it would have not been retrofitted yet. It would have been the middle bronze, massive structure, likely quite tall. And in your view, nothing would have been built on the location of where the current temple Mount is, right? That that would have been just a hill. There would have been no, maybe there's some structures, but it would not have been fortified at the time of Solomon. Correct? Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to say, it's a good but it's a good question because that's actually what um, what's called the mound on the mount theory. And essentially, this is what uh, Israel Finkelstein and several other scholars have argued that ancient Jerusalem is not around the Gihon Spring, but it's actually uh, beneath the Temple Mount, um, I, which is not a, necessarily a horrible theory. But I, I would disagree with it because I think that the finds in and around the Gihon Spring um, as well as the um, as well as the step stone uh, structure and the large stone structure uh, seem to fit nicely with um, in, in that case iron one you know 11th and 10th century but with the the Gihon spring and its and its large fortifications being middle bronze age now if there's something there on the Temple Mount it, it's it's impossible uh, to say with certainty yeah so I guess the question that I have for you is if we have sort of a massive, structure, massive defensive structure at the place of the filling, bait me low. And there would have been um, a valley, right? Or a saddle between that location, um, dividing it from the hill just to the north. Um, correct? Because that has been filled in. Um, correct? I'm, I'm Literally, I'm just trying to get a sense of the topography of what Solomon would yeah, have it's, seen, it's, right? It's, it's it's hard to see, and, and we can put we can put a visualization of this in the in the links. For I know the I'm taking us way doing... off track. I'm just trying to think no, about no, like what it looks like. More, there's done yeah. some work, but essentially, we don't know with absolute certainty. But the thought is is that the um, that the fortification, which is actually a fortified passageway coming down from the Middle Bronze and then later Iron Age fortifications, would have gone and set right over the spring, and so it would have actually descended, and so there would have been a need to have these massive fortifications because you're actually lower than the city itself. And so it's, it's more or less on, along the slopes. And then over time, there are parts of the eastern slopes that are, are going to be fortified, but they're actually in some places further up towards the west and higher. Um, so how exactly it would have looked uh, is, is hard to say. And there's actually been work done on that at, at this, you know, at this moment, there's been excavations done in this area. So we'll know more about that later on, but it's, it's really clear though, that this continued to be used and would have clearly been uh, associated with, um, you know, middle bronze through ninth century, which is another important point because it fits exactly with what Hezekiah says, why should the king of Assyria have the waters of Jerusalem? And those of you, those of, uh, who, who out there who have, who have known about Assyrian siege tactics, this is the first thing they do. We even have depictions of this in the ninth and eighth century where they show how they cut off access to the water source. And so by essentially creating a new water source that cut through and was placed at the most uh, defensive spot 
in Jerusalem, which is the confluence of the Kidron, Hinnom, and Central Valleys, Hezekiah was able to really um, save himself. And so there's a sense in which, as great as the Gihon Spring and its spring tower was, it could not really face off with the threat of the uh, of the Assyrians, because that was precisely the kind of thing that they were looking to uh, to conquer. And had they conquered that, it would have been game over. So interesting. I Thank you for going through this, because one, I didn't know anything about it. Two, I think it's fascinating, not only for myself, but for everyone who has a chance to go to visit Jerusalem, exp, you know, see the, the spring tower, because it's hard to know what you're looking at, right? You're seeing these kind of big stones, you go to the stepstone structure, your area G, you're kind of not sure. But I think giving the, narr- the, the narration that you've given about what this would have been, the importance it would have had both in the Middle Bronze Age and Iron Age, and then more to the point, like even for those who can't visit Jerusalem or just reading about it, understanding the notion of kingship tied to this sort of mi- massive Beit Milo structure and that you know, kings were crowned and deposed in this location. I think it really transforms the way we read the text. Um, it's not that they're going to the place of the landfill, right? They're going to right, the place right. of, they're going to a really <laughs> large structure that would have been symbolic of the power of Jerusalem at the time, which I think really transforms the way you read. At least for me, I, I, I'm excited to kind of read it in light of the the discussion you've given. Well, I, I'm glad you're excited. I mean, I it's my it's our idea, me and Aaron Tavger, as well as Joe, and in there, and I want to give them full credit, Joe and Nakshon Zantone, Aaron Tavger, for for helping us put this this article together. And I think I'm really happy with the way it turned out. But it's it really is exciting. I mean, I think it's an exciting way to understand how these stories put together. And as we think about coronations and how they would have taken place, it makes sense that after this, they are coronated in the palace and near the temple, which of course Solomon built. Uh, so you have, you know, the continuation of these ideas uh, moving forward as you as you look at some of the other sources, such as Joash, which is certainly coronated right after the assassination of his grandmother in the area of the temple. And so it's, again, perhaps an earlier uh, strata of, of this story that is reflective of something from the 10th and the 9th century. Uh, and maybe one day we'll f- actually find evidence of, of 10th century remains. We don't have evidence as of yet, but who knows? Maybe, maybe it will, uh, it'll, it'll turn up later. Very cool. Well, thanks. Thanks, Chris, for, for sharing this and like kind of a cutting edge, innovative idea around Jerusalem. It doesn't come up upon archaeologists every day. So um, exciting to see where this goes and your, you know, theory of the two springs and all of that and where that's going to go. So thanks again. My pleasure. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>